Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated, and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Today on our podcast, we hear our sermon from this weekend, the first Sunday of Lent, where Pastor Ben introduces our series for this season, Sacrifice, and how sacrifice leads to growth in the Christian life. Our scripture for this week is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonosius, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able to make these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds came to him. What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threat or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them, saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. Thanks for listening. Let's get growing. Well, if you've been around here long enough, you've probably learned through some of the conversations, some of the stories that I grew up in a small town in Minnesota. But after that, after high school, it was time to get out of there. It was time for bigger and better things, and so I decided to go to college in the suburbs of Minneapolis. 
And after college, I actually decided to stay up there and do my, my first stint in ministry at a church in that same area. Now, there's a lot of benefits that come from living in a bigger area. There's a lot of things to do. And one of the, my favorite things to do was to go to the Mall of America, which is only 15 minutes away from my apartment at that time. And so when I had an evening or a free weekend, sometimes I would sneak out to the mall. And if you have never been to the Mall of America, it is the largest mall in America. And I can't even describe how massive it is. It's store upon store upon store, restaurant upon restaurant upon restaurant. Or my favorite part was people upon people upon people. I mean, it is just packed all the time. And I didn't even go there to shop. I mean, I sort of went there to shop, but really I went there to just observe people, to people watch. I mean, there was people from all different cultures who wore all different types of clothing, all had different kinds of styles. And I just loved to watch them walk around, interact with people. I loved to watch the people on dates or the people with their families and just see how they were different than me or kind of perceive the world different than me. I just really enjoy people watching. And maybe some of you do as well. But every once in a while, I would run into that rare person, that rare gem, as I like to call it. And this type of person is, is, is very hard to spot, very hard to see. And, and I rarely run into somebody like this. But it's the person who literally does not care about what anyone else thinks about them. I mean, not a lot of us are like this. We all kind of worry about what people think or how they perceive us, how we look, or how we act, or what we say. But every once in a while, there is that rare gem of people who just don't care. And as I've looked at people like this and engaged with people like this, I, I've kind of put them into two categories. If you don't think or care about what people think about you, either you're completely crazy or you're a genius. And there's no in-between. Take, for example, someone like Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was the founder of Apple and then later the CEO of Apple until his passing. And he lived in this category. He didn't care what anyone had to say about him. But he was not in the crazy category. He was in the genius category. Here's an example from his life. He didn't care what you had to say about him to the point that he wore the same clothes his entire adult life. Now, not the same pair of jeans every day in and out, but his whole wardrobe was the same exact thing. He wore New Balance shoes, he wore jeans, and he wore a black mock turtleneck every day of his life because he didn't care what you had to say about what he wore or if he was in style. And the reason he didn't care is because he was laser-focused on what he was supposed to do in this life. Well, when you run into our piece of scripture today, we're going to run into somebody that actually is described as someone very similar. Someone who is laser focused on what he was supposed to do in this life and didn't care what you had to say, especially about his clothing. In fact, in the book of Matthew, we're told that John the Baptist wore some pretty interesting clothes. And we know they're interesting because Matthew actually writes down what this guy wore, which means it was abnormal. And we're told that he wore a camel hair garb, a leather belt, and he even had weird dietary practices. He ate locusts and wild honey, and that was his diet. And you know why? Because he didn't care what you had to think about him or me or anyone else, because he had a purpose and a mission, and beyond that, he wasn't concerned about anything else. And we run into his story in the book of Luke, and this is what we see. 
In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was the ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, the ruler of the region of Atitara and Tacnatius, and Licinius, ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So we once again step into the gospel of Luke, and to really understand Luke, we have to understand what, what drove Luke, what inspired Luke. You see, Luke was a doctor, a man of science, a natural skeptic. But he heard this rumor, this amazing story of this person who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross and then came back to life. And Luke was so intrigued by the story that he dedicated his life to figure out if this story was true. Because if this story was true, it was going to change the world. It was revolutionary. And so he went out and he began to interview people and engage with people and talk to people who had talked to Jesus, who had seen Jesus after the resurrection. And after all that, Luke was thoroughly convinced that it was all true. And he was so convinced that it was true that he actually decided to write down an accurate history of what had happened through the interview process that he had undertaken. And he specifically wrote it for his friend, Theophilus, because he wanted his friend to be convinced and feel confident in the faith that Luke had found. And little did Luke know that his book would be put into the category of gospel, that it would be still read today. But it was because of Luke that many of us have a clear reading of Scripture. It's because of Luke that many of us understand the amazing story of Christ. But because Luke's job was to write down history, there's a lot of parts that we would probably consider dry. A lot of just layers of history, a lot of layers of facts. And so when we start this third chapter of Luke, this is what we run into. A whole bunch of facts, a whole bunch of history. But what's so beautiful about how Luke writes... And what's so beautiful about all those layers of history is that when we read them, it means that they're verifiable. It means that we can actually look through history and question if what Luke is writing is true. And when we look through history, not just biblical history, but history outside of the realm of religion, we see that all these people that Luke was talking about existed. Not only that, but all these people existed at the same time. And not only that, but when we look through history, we can get a very clear point, time, and frame of when this is happening, when this story is taking place. Because all these people, when they all layer up, it only happens from 28 to 29 AD. And this is when John gets his mission from God. And this is what happens. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, God calls John out to a very specific mission where he was laser-focused. And John was so laser-focused that he was only concerned about that. He obviously wasn't concerned about what people thought about what he ate or what he wore. He was only concerned about pleasing God. And so he did what God told him to do. He went out, he started preaching this, this repentance of baptism, and he went and told everyone about it. But what you don't understand in the modern day is that this was offensive. This would be offensive. See, John was speaking to a group of primarily Jewish people. And baptism wasn't new at this point in time. Baptism had been around, but it was something reserved for Gentiles. You see, it was a, a second layer, a second cleansing that the Jewish people put on Gentile people to be entered into the covenant. 
You see, for a Jewish person, you were just born a Jew. You were circumcised and then connected to the covenant, connected to the religion and the belief system that the Jewish people had bought into. But if you were a Gentile person, if you were someone like us, and you wanted in, if you believed and you wanted to be connected to that old covenant, you had to do two things. You had to be circumcised and be marked of the covenant, and then you also had to be baptized because you weren't quite up to par. You weren't quite up to standard. And so when John goes out there and he preaches to this group of primarily Jewish people that they need to be baptized, this would be offensive. Not only would it be offensive, but it would be incredibly challenging because what he's saying for them to do is to be repentant, to be transparent of what actually is going on in their life. You see, if they went forward, they were admitting something. I'm broken. I have some addiction. I have some struggles. Well, Luke goes on, and this is what he says next. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. You see, another interesting thing that Luke does when he's writing his gospel is not only does he put a lot of history in there so we can verify it and see that it's true, but he also puts a lot of prophecy in there. You see, when he was doing his research, when he was engaging with people, he began to see that these predictions made over 700 years ago by the prophet Isaiah lined up with what was happening in his lifetime. It lined up with what was happening with John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness. And John the Baptist's major purpose was to point towards Christ, the salvation for all of the world. Another amazing proof in Scripture that our faith, that the faith proclaimed in the Bible, is true and valid. 700 years before this moment, this prediction happens, along with so many predictions in the Bible. 700 years. This is older than the United States of America. This is unbelievable. Well, the story goes on. And John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Did I say that John didn't care what you had to think about him? Obviously, he didn't care what these people thought about him. So this crowd comes out to him, and what does he call them? You brood of vipers. You are snakes. Not just snakes. You are poison snakes. That if we opened you up and, and looked inside, what would you find? Just corruption and disease and poisonous behavior. But it gets worse. John doesn't back off. He continues, Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. He just keeps his foot on the gas pedal and keeps going at these people, saying, You think just because you're genetically Jewish that you are a part of the covenant? You're broken and corrupt. In fact, you're so broken and corrupt that God will take from these stones, meaning these Gentile people, and he'll raise up people for his covenant if he needs to. And John just keeps going. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So now he really gets strong with his language. There's some serious implication here. 
that these people actually be cut out of the covenant. And not just cut out of the covenant, but destroyed by fire. An implication of eternal damnation. So what is the people's response? This is what they do. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. So the people, for some reason, beyond my understanding, they respond to this. Whatever he says gets across. I mean, maybe they take an honest accountability of themselves, but, but they're ready to move forward in action. So they say, what do we have to sacrifice? What do we have to do? He says, I want you to say no to some of your earthly pleasures. So you can say yes to somebody else. I want you to give up your coat and and some of your excess food so other people can be served. And in doing that, they will win and you will win. And he goes on, there's more people. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. You see, as you know, tax collectors were, were traitors. Tax collectors were Jewish people who took proceeds from their nation of Israel and sent it off to Rome, the invading nation. But not only that, but part of their job, part of the perks of their job, was that when they charged for taxes, they would have their own personal surcharge that would allow them to get rich. And that was actually the point of even doing that job as a person. You would become rich in the process, rich and rich and richer every step of the way. So even the tax collectors come forward and say, what do we have to do? What sacrifices do we have to make? And John says, stop behaving that way. Stop taking extra. Just take the taxes that are necessary. In other words, make a financial sacrifice that's better for them, and it's going to be better for you. And more people come to John. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats of false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Once again, the soldiers come. What do we have to sacrifice? What what do we have to give up? And John says, Don't use your strength and your authority to your advantage to strong-arm people. Sacrifice that and do what is right. And in that, by you saying no to that, they will win and you will win. Well, Luke's story goes on. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. You see, the way that John interacted with life, the way that John spoke so boldly, the way that John didn't care about what anyone had to say, this caught people's attention. And they began to wonder, could this be the Messiah that we've heard about? The Messiah we were told about as kids? Because this is how they viewed the Messiah, a strong person who spoke with authority and didn't care what anyone had to say. But this is John's response. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, John was saying, you think I'm impressive? You think I'm straightforward? You think I'm strong? You think I'm really bringing something to the table? You just wait. 
You just wait to see what the Messiah is going to be like. In fact, if, if I had to describe myself as a servant, John says, I, I would be the lowest servant in comparison to this guy. He would be the master, and I, I would be the servant who has the, the worst job, which is to simply untie his, his dirty shoes after whatever he was doing for the day. But actually, I wouldn't even be of value for that. I actually would be the person who could maybe just watch that happen. I mean, this guy's going to be so far beyond me. I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, something so more, much more significant. And the story goes on. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. I love how Luke writes this. He says, the good news. I mean, John has just been railing on these people and calling them evil and horrible and awful. But there's a beauty to what John is doing. See, there's a beauty to clarity. John doesn't pull any punches. He's 100% honest with them. That God wants to restore them. That God wants a relationship with them. That God is reaching down to grab their hand to join them in partnership, to live life with them in this life and the next. But John is also very clear that if we reject that hand, if we reject the Holy Spirit working, that God will give us exactly what we want. If we don't want a relationship with him in this life, we won't have a relationship with him in the next life. So Luke's story continues But Herod, the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. So did I mention that John doesn't care what you have to think about him or anyone else? Even the ruler, he didn't care. You see, Herod, who was Herod the Great's son, Herod the Great was the the king who tried to kill off Jesus when he was young. He takes over. He's ruling And he has his own issues at hand. So Herod divorces his wife. Then he marries his brother's wife, who is also his niece. It's quite some family dynamics going on there. And John calls him out and says, this is evil. The way you're behaving is horrible and you need to stop. And so how does this guy respond? He throws John in prison and ultimately has him killed. But before that happens, this takes place. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. You see in that crowd that John was just railing at and calling vipers and and evil and all these things, there was Jesus. And when people were so bold to be transparent and went forward into baptism, basically admitting that they were failures and they were vipers and they were evil, people began to murmur. You can just see the crowd there. As people walked forward to John, as people were baptized, people were wondering, what did they do? What's wrong with them? What's their addiction? What's their brokenness? And once all those people had gone up, once all the rumors were spreading, Jesus also went forward. 
Jesus submitted himself to baptism. And the crowd did the exact same thing. What's wrong with this guy? What addiction does he have? What brokenness does he have? You see, Jesus, much like John the Baptist, didn't care what that crowd had to think about him. Because the truth is, he had no sin. He was perfect. But he went there because it was for us. He set the standard and he modeled baptism for us so that we too would follow in his example, that we too could experience the amazing blessing of baptism. You see, today we begin a series called Sacrifice. And the truth of sacrifice is this. It's not just saying no to something. See, sacrifice through God's lens is saying no to something, but then receiving something from God. And so today, this is what we see through John the Baptist's life, and this is what we see also through the example of Christ's life, is that through sacrifice, we trade looking good for being good. We, in our transparency and our honesty, clean off the veneer that we are actually good, that we actually have it all together, that we are perfect, that we don't have any issues, and we take off that veneer, we're transparent in what we do, and then we actually have the potential to move in God's direction. You see, you don't even have to be a Christian to experience the blessing of this truth. In fact, this is true in every area of your life. Think about your finances. If you're just honest about that credit card debt, if you're just honest about the money coming in and the money going out and all those things, if you were just transparent and honest and you had those conversations, you actually have the potential to find health in those areas. It's true of your relationships. If you were honest with your spouse about what's going on, if you were honest with your boyfriend or girlfriend about what's going on and and what you're feeling, then you could find health in that relationship. But see, on a deeper level, on a more important level, This is where Jesus wants to really drive it home. This is where God really wants to speak to us today. Is that spiritually, we have to be transparent to you. Honest and open about our brokenness and our corruption and our disease. All the areas where we fall short. We actually can find healing. So we don't just look good. We'll actually be good. And that is the beautiful power of sacrifice. Amen.